Please turn to Galatians. If you have your Bibles with you, um, I recommend uh, pulling out a Bible. If you don't, you can use the pew Bibles in front of you. Galatians is in the New Testament. It's about page 972 in the black pew Bibles, 780s in the red. Let's see if I can find it here. There you go, Galatians. <coughs> uh, while you're turning there, I want to remind you of uh, our vision for this year as a church, uh, as uh, this fiscal year. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I'm praying for and that we're all praying for, I hope, this year is that we would love to see God work through us uh, to bring five people, at least, to faith in him this year. We would love that. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you love that? that? That would be amazing. I mean, we, we were praying for that, that God would do that, that he would use us to be the sowers of the seed of the word of God and that, that we would have the chance then even to harvest, you know, helping people to put their faith in Christ and to believe in him uh, this year. That's, that's what we're praying for. We'd love to see that happen. Um, now to clarify, that's, that's not something, the way I see it, that's not something that's just an official thing that's going to happen only at church-sanctioned events, right? It's not like, I hope that five people uh, in the course of a Sunday morning sermon or a special evangelistic outreach will believe the gospel. I mean, that'd be great, okay? But that's not, that's not what I mean when I am talking about this. Um, I'm talking about God using us, you and me together as we live our lives and go out and interact with our bosses and our neighbors and our friends and people at the gym and, and that we have the opportunity in those natural relationships to share the gospel and, for, and over the course of a relationship for people to, to put their faith in Christ and we get the chance to, to lead them to Christ and then naturally to invite them and to plug them into to our ministry or a local church that fits them. Um, so if it's not just about me, uh, then it's important for all of us uh, to be equipped, to be able to do that. I mean, I said, think, well, how, how in the world could I do that? How, I mean, uh, how could I be able to, to lead someone to Christ? I've never done that. I don't know how to do that. And, and I think the only way it's really going to happen, um, I mean, maybe you're thinking, I don't want to do that. Uh, the only way that that's really going to happen is if we as a congregation be, get, get so familiar with the gospel, so saturated in the gospel, uh, that, that it becomes just a second language for us, that we just know and it, we can understand it really well, we, we're, we're clear in our ability to share it, and, and it so deeply affects us, so changes our lives, transforms us, that we can't help but share it. Right? We, we just got to soak in the gospel, marinate in the gospel, understanding it and being transformed by it so that we're propelled out into mission, and then we have the words to say and to explain it to others. Now, thankfully, Galatians is a book that is all about the gospel. And as we spend our time in this book, I think we are going to continue to marinate in it and see and understand what the simple gospel is and then how it is it changes our lives and propels us out to share that truth with others. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look in chapter 2 now. We've made it through chapter 1. All right, we did it. It only took us a few weeks. We're in chapter 2 today. We're going to look at 10 whole verses today, a little faster pace. And as we look at, at this particular passage today, we're going to see three things about the gospel. We're going to see what we must not do to the gospel, uh, what we must do with the gospel, and what we must let the gospel do to us. All right, so that's where we're going today, and those are on your outline if you didn't catch them. Uh, my prayer as we go through this is that we'll understand the gospel more deeply, be transformed by it, and then be propelled in mission. So we're in Galatians chapter 2, 
uh, to remind you of what's going on in this book so far. You remember Paul planted some churches in an area of uh, modern-day Turkey about called Galatia. A uh, bunch of people, not Jewish people, they're called Gentiles. And he shared the gospel with them. They believed the gospel. But then some people came in after Paul, and they said, Paul messed up the message. He didn't quite get it quite right. The gospel is different than what you thought. And so Paul responds with this letter, and there's a fight going on about what is the gospel, what is the truth, the central truth of Christianity. And so far in the book, Paul's established that there's a fight, and he's begun to argue that his gospel is the right one to listen to because his came from God and not from man. He didn't make it up. He didn't get it from anybody else. It came directly from God. It's an independent message, and yet it lines up with what everyone else received. Now what, we, what we see here in chapter 2 is we get more confirmation that the message that he's giving lines up with the message that has been taught by the apostles from the very beginning. So here we are in Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. It says, Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised only, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. That's God's word. So what I want to show you from here, these three things, what we must not do to the gospel, what we must do with the gospel, and what we must let the gospel do to us. First, what we must not do to the gospel. What we must not do to the gospel, not do to the gospel is add to it. What must we not do to the gospel? We must not add to it. This is what we see in the first six verses here. This is the issue. This is the big issue at stake in this whole conversation. What is the gospel? Should there be anything added to it? What, what is the essential nature of it? Uh, the question that's on the table as Paul goes to Jerusalem in chapter 2 is, do you have to do anything besides believe in Jesus to be accepted by God? That's, that's the question. Do you have to do anything? Is there anything else? Anything at all? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Is there anything besides believing in Jesus that you have to do to be saved? Is there anything? Now his opponents say very clearly, yes. Yes. There is something that you must do in addition to believing in Jesus. Yes, you believe in Jesus. His opponents would say that. They'd say believe in Jesus. But that's not enough you also have to become a Jew. Uh, now, you get a, a, a very clear statement of their position if you read in Acts chapter 15. Um, I'll, I'll just flip there for you and read it to you. But in Acts chapter 15, in a couple places, this issue is being debated again. 
And here's what the opponents are still saying at that point. In Acts 15.1, it says, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They're saying, believe in Jesus, yes, but you also, if it's applicable to you, you have to be circumcised. If, if you're a man, you have to be circumcised. But then they also flesh it out in Acts 15, uh, verse 5. It says, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. You get the, the fuller picture there. It's not just circumcision. It's circumcision as a sign of becoming a Jewish person. You, know, you, you have to keep the whole law. You've got to just become a Jew. All that stuff that we've been doing for ages, keeping the food laws and, and getting circumcised and following the feast days and celebrating the Sabbath, all that stuff. They're saying, yes, you believe in Jesus. Of course believe in Jesus. But, I mean, you understand. You still have to follow all that stuff that we did in the Old Testament. You still have to become a Jew you have to believe in Jesus and you have to get circumcised. You have to follow the law if you want to get saved. This is this very clear battle lines. They're saying, yes, you must add something to Jesus. Now Paul, on the other hand, says, no way. That's what the fight in Galatians is all about. And he says, no, there's no way. No, you do not have to do that. Belief in Jesus is enough. You can't add anything to the gospel. And so he goes to Jerusalem to hash it out with the Jerusalem leaders to see what they think as well, to make sure that they've got the true gospel like he does. And I love it. He takes Titus with him. He takes Titus into the heart of Jew country. He takes Titus, who is a believer, yes, right, in verse 3, he's a believer, uh, but he's also a Greek. He's a Gentile, uncircumcised guy, believing in Jesus, but he's certainly not becoming a Jew. And Paul says, hey, Titus, why don't you come along with me this trip to Jerusalem? And they're having this conversation, and Paul's in the room, Titus is in the room. You can't ignore it. You're saying, what are we going to do with this? Titus is here. He claims to be a believer. You're going to make him get circumcised? It's just elephant in the room, this test case. What's going to happen? What are you going to do about this, Jerusalem? And the resolution, which is so important. The resolution is what you see in verse 3. He says, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. They say it again in verse 6. Um, those who were influential, and at the end it says, they added nothing to me. They added nothing to my message. See, the solution that happens here, and you get it again later in Acts 15, you, you find the same solution. They, they sit down, they talk about it, and they agree, yes. That's the same message that we've gotten from the beginning. These, these, these people who want you to become Jews, they're getting it wrong. The message from Jesus the message that we're committing to you, the gospel we're preaching, is you only have to believe in Jesus to be saved. Nothing else. Nothing else. They added nothing. I want you to just, I found this fascinating. I, I heard this pointed out in a, in a sermon um, on this particular passage, and I want to pass it on to you. Just consider the folks who were in the room as they made this decision. You've got Paul, of course, obviously. Uh, in verse 9, they tell us the other ones. James is there. Cephas, I told you that's just another name for Peter. Peter's there. John is there. You think about these folks. Okay, Paul, he wrote m most of the New Testament. I mean, he wrote all these epistles, right? All these letters, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, all this. That Paul wrote that. Paul is also the main traveling companion of Luke, so you could, you could consider Luke's writings to be influenced or under Paul's authority. Luke, Acts. Uh, you got James, he wrote the book of James. You've got Peter, he wrote 1st and 2nd Peter, probably also the main source for Mark's gospel. 
You've got John who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation. So, so in this room, you've got people who wrote everything in the New Testament except for Matthew, Hebrews, and Jude. They're sitting there, the authors of the New Testament, and they're saying, yes, we are unanimous. The Gospel is faith in Jesus Christ alone, plus nothing. Now, if you read Matthew and you read Hebrews and you read Jude, you find it's the same message there, too. Uh, the message is unanimous, across the board, very clear in the gospel, in the scriptures. The gospel is, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that alone, plus nothing, is all you need for salvation. Why is this important? This is so important. Why, why, why is this important? It's because when you add anything to the gospel, you bring slavery. Okay? This, is, this is the difference between freedom and slavery. Look at verse 4. So it's a little convoluted, but, but you get the gist of it. He says, there's these certain false brothers who slipped in to spy out our freedom so that they might bring us into slavery. Paul says, this is what happens when you get the gospel wrong. When you add anything to the gospel, what you're left with is slavery. Uh, now, there's two kinds of slavery. First of all, there's total spiritual slavery. This is what we see in these false brothers. Isn't that a really interesting word? It says there's these false brothers, these pseudo-brothers. These people who think that they're Christians, who act like they're Christians, and yet Paul says they're false. They're not really Christians. I mean, do you recognize that that's a category that exists? Just because someone, just because you or I claim to be a Christian does not make one a Christian? These guys thought that they were brothers. They thought that they were part of the family of God. And yet Paul labels them as false brothers. And what makes them false brothers is that they believed a false gospel. See, if you don't believe the real gospel, then you don't really become a Christian. If you believe a false gospel, all that makes you is a false Christian. And you're still in slavery. There's still, these false brothers, they're in slavery, total spiritual slavery. They're unforgiven. They're unreconciled to God. The wrath of God still remains on them, but they're in such a dangerous situation because now they think that they're okay. See, this can happen. If you add something to the gospel and you believe a false gospel, Jesus plus something, then it may be that you're not really a Christian. Maybe some of you, the hairs on the back of your neck are going up a little bit. I mean, it's the, the question that you ask then is, well, then how do I know? How, how do I know? How do I know if I'm a true Christian or a false Christian? Well, what, there's a number of tests. I mean, if you read through 1 John, you'll, you'll get a lot of help with that. But one test that's here is uh, which gospel are you believing? I mean, that, that's the issue on the table here. How do you know if you're a false Christian or a true Christian? Well, did you believe the false gospel or do you believe the true gospel? That's the question here. For these false brothers, they believed a false gospel. They believed faith in Jesus plus circumcision was necessary for salvation. Uh, today, throughout history, we've had different versions of that. Faith in Jesus plus being good enough. Okay? That's a false gospel. Uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, a variety of false gospels. Faith in Jesus plus uh, adhering to certain traditions. Uh, faith in Jesus plus uh, ceasing from sin. Just believe in Jesus, yes, but then don't sin anymore. That's how you get saved. Th there's all sorts of varieties. And 
And I'm going to be very clear here because I don't want people to get overly scared. I don't want everybody to think, oh, I must not really be a Christian. But I'm going to be very, very careful here in the way that I word this. It's possible that you may be a false Christian if you are consciously and explicitly relying on your own performance to please God. Okay, So those two words I chose carefully. If you're consciously and explicitly relying on your own performance to please God, you may not even be a Christian. Consciously, that is, you know that you're doing it. Explicitly, you, you understand, you think. If someone asks you, why do you think you're saved? You say, well, because I believe in Jesus and my good deeds outweigh my bad. If you say that, you don't even know the gospel. If you consciously and explicitly are relying on something plus Jesus for your salvation, then you are in danger of being a false believer because that's a false gospel. If you're adding something to Jesus, you haven't even gotten the gospel yet. Now, that's one category of slavery. Uh, Another category, though, that's relevant for believers, so you pass that first test. Now, what about, what about you? Well, it's this category that the Galatians themselves find, their sel- find themselves in. Uh, so you had total spiritual slavery, which is you're still dead in your sins. But then you've also got functional spiritual slavery. That is, in, in functional daily life, you're living as if you're still a slave, although you've been freed. This is the Galatians. That's the whole point of this letter. Paul is writing to people who have been truly converted. They did believe the true gospel from his own lips. And now he's writing to them saying, people are coming in trying to enslave you again so that you behave as if you're not set free. And that is where Christians find themselves all the time. Find themselves all the time willing to step back under the regime of slavery instead of freedom that comes in the gospel. See, what God wants for us, what he wants for, your pe- for his people, I mean, just read Galatians 5. What he wants uh, is for you to be the most joy-filled, the most love-filled, the most peaceful, faithful, gentle, kind, wonderful, uh, contented people on the face of the earth. This is what God offers in the gospel, his spirit dwelling in you. This is what we should be if we are living in the truth of the gospel, and yet so often we're not. We're not. And why is that? It's because we're putting ourselves back under slavery to something instead of living in the freedom we have as children of God. See, functionally we're saying, I believe in Jesus plus something else. Now you can add anything to Jesus to get slavery. You can, you can take work and you can say, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got Jesus plus my work. And yet when things are going well, with work, when, when work's just moving along fine, you think life is great, life is wonderful, things are good, but then work goes south. Something bad happens, and all of a sudden, life is horrible. You see, it's this roller coaster, like, as work goes, so goes my life. That, that's, that's a slavery, that's a bondage. You're, you're enslaved to your performance at work, so that when things are going well, you're feeling good. But as soon as work says, life's not good, you say, life is not good. Your, your, your performance, your life, everything is based on your work. You may say your life is based on Jesus, but you've added something. You let something else come in there. It can happen with school. It can happen with your kids. When your kids are obeying, when your kids are getting good grades, um, when your kids are flourishing, life is good. But when your kids do something that embarrasses you, or when your kids uh, get a bad report from the teacher, 
when, when your kids don't obey, then life is horrible. What, what, what is that? Why, did, why does your kid's performance have such a hold over you? It's because you're basing your life not just on Jesus, but on Jesus plus your kids, and you're enslaved. You can be slaved to, enslaved to your health, enslaved to money, enslaved to romance. You can be enslaved to getting your own way. You can be enslaved to a sports team. I mean, so many people are upset on Monday morning when the Bears lose. Just ridiculous. You can add Jesus plus anything and get slavery, a functional slavery. I'm not questioning your salvation. But it's just, why, why are you not living the victorious Christian life? It's because you're enslaved. You're putting anything in there with Jesus. See, if functionally Jesus is not alone in the center of your life, you're going to be a slave to whatever else you put in there with him. But if you have Christ, you can rejoice. Like Paul says in Philippians 4, 13, I, I, I know what it's like to have a lot of money. I know what it's like to have nothing. And in every circumstance, I know the secret to being content. What's the secret? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've got Jesus, and that's enough. See, what must we do? With what, we must, what must we not do to the gospel? We must not add to it. If we add to it, we lose the freedom. We lose the, the joy. We get enslaved. Oh, but if we can repent of our slavery, if we can repent of our adding to the gospel, then we experience freedom and joy and life and peace. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Now, the next two points I believe are briefer. What must we do with the gospel? What must we do with the gospel? We must share it. We must share it. This is verses 7 through 9 in our passage. I find it fascinating uh, that after these first six verses where Paul and Barnabas and the apostles are sitting there and they get the theology hammered out, we get the verdict. You're right, Paul. We agree with you. This is the same message. We're adding nothing. They get the theology hammered out. They don't pack it up and just leave. As soon as they get the theology hammered out, they move immediately into a discussion of mission and logistics. Uh, they, they figure out what is the core uh, essence of the gospel, and they say, okay, now what do we do with this? It's not just an intellectual exercise. They're not just uh, agreeing on the principles. We got the doctrine straight. Now we're done. No, the doctrine was the precursor to the actual work of mission. They say, once we get the, the gospel figured out, we agree on that, now, what do we do with it? We go, we share it. You see what happens there? At the end of verse 6, they, they add nothing to the gospel, and then 7 through 9, again, it's kind of a complicated sentence, but the gist of it is that they agree that Paul has uh, a mission that's been given by God primarily to Gentiles, and Peter uh, and the other Jerusalem apostles, they got a mission that's primarily to Jews, and they say, let's shake hands on it, let's go, let's do this thing, let's take the gospel out. You see, that's what happens when you get the gospel. When you get it. When you finally understand the, the beauty and the wonder and the life-changing power of the gospel, of, of how Christ changes you from the inside out through no part of your own effort. When you get it, when you get the doctrine right, you don't just say, all right, I got it right. You, you get propelled. You, you get sent out into mission. I mean, I know some of you uh, were, were converts later in life. Okay, it's not my story. I was I saved as a young kid. But I know some of you have those kind of classic stories of, of becoming a Christian later in life. And you know, I've heard it from your own lips, what it was like when that happened. You could not shut up. 
you, you could not not tell somebody. Your life was radically transformed, and it was all that you could do to just tell everyone around you the simple truth of the gospel, how it changed your life, how you're saved by free grace alone. And that's what happens. Okay? But, but then over time, and this is more my story, over time what happens is you get involved in the Christian subculture, and you forget that it's about free grace. You think being a Christian is really about being moral. It's really about doing the right things. It's really about being a good person and having a good family. And begin to think subconsciously, um, why would I share that with anybody else? I mean, this person that I know, they're decently moral. They've got a good family. Why would I impose my beliefs on them? I mean, why, who am I to tell them how they should live? But the gospel is not a prescription for how you should live. The gospel is life-changing good news. It's good news. And I think what we need, honestly, for, for folks that have been Christians for a long time, we need to stop and get back to that. We need to think about that. We need to get back to where it just rocks our world to understand that God saved us by free grace. I mean, if you sit here today and you think, I have no motivation whatsoever to share the gospel with others, then what you need, first of all, is not to just go out and share the gospel. What you need is to look at the gospel and say, why does this not excite me? Why does this not propel me out to share with the people that I love? You need to look at the gospel and recapture the beauty of it so that your heart is overflowing with enjoyment and love for God and you can't help but share. It's kind of cliche, but there's, you know, there's that, that phrase, that we're, you know, we're just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. You may have heard that. I mean, that's all we do. But I wonder, how many of us are, beggar, how many of us are actually eating the bread ourselves? You know, I mean, I think sometimes we're, we just think, cast ourselves as beggars. So we, we know that there's a table of food over there and you guys should go eat, but we're not eating. Look, the, the bread's there for you. And I think if you really want to be motivated to tell people about it, you should go, you should taste the bread, you should eat it. You'd be like, wow, this is really amazing bread. I should tell other people they should come eat this bread. Instead of just saying, look, there's a table over there. I mean, what, I'm, what I'm saying is let's believe what the Bible says when it says taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste, experience it yourself. Crave that. And as you have that experience, then you can go and share with others and say, look what the Lord has done for me. See, we're compelled. We're constrained by the gospel. When you get it, you can't help but share it. That's what the apostles did. They, they hammered it out and they said, all right, how can we take this to the whole stinking world? We'll take the Jews, you get the Gentiles. We got it covered. What must we do with the gospel? We must share it. Number three, it flows right out of this. What must we let the gospel do to us? We must let it motivate us. We must let it motivate us. This is uh, out of verse 10 here, and I love verse 10, because I think on first reading, if you're paying attention, you might think that this is somewhat of an oddity, maybe even a contradiction. Uh, verse 10, so we've had this whole discussion about the gospel. What is the nature of it? You can't add to it. Uh, it's just belief in Jesus alone. And say, great, now let's go out into the world. Let's do our mission. And then at the very end, you have this verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now that can seem like a contradiction, right? Do you see that? You've had this whole conversa conversation. They say, the gospel is faith in Jesus alone. Add nothing. We just want to add this one thing. Okay, don't, don't add anything to the gospel except just care for the poor. Wait, wait a minute, what are you doing? Didn't you just add something? 
Well, no, they, they didn't. Um, I mean, clearly, clearly, after all this discussion so far about adding nothing to the gospel, they're not going to just tack on this backdoor thing, like, but, but we really, of course, understood that you care for the poor. I mean, so believe in Jesus and care for the poor, then you get saved. No, they're not saying that. Look, it's been very clear up to this point that only faith in Jesus alone is what saves, okay? But faith in Jesus alone is never alone. When you put your faith in Jesus, things happen. You get transformed. You, you inevitably do things like sharing the gospel and like caring for the poor. See, in context, you've got to remember what's going on here is the, the poor that they're talking about here is, is probably the, the Jews in Jerusalem. Okay, so Paul's come to Jerusalem. He's talking with the Jews. And, and just if you understand the socioeconomic times that, that's going on there, uh, there's a famine in Judea. Uh, the people there are more poor than other parts of the country. I mean, if you, other parts of the Mediterranean. Paul's going out to the Gentiles. He's going to Greece. He's going to Rome. He's going to Asia Minor. He's going to places where people have money. The Jews don't have a lot of money. Uh, in context, probably this particular visit happens in the, uh, Acts 11 and 12, if you want to read there, where there was a prophet who said uh, there's going to be a famine in Judea, and Paul and Barnabas and a couple others from Antioch and Syria said, we're going to go with this, uh, with this collection, we're going to take money there, and probably this visit that we're reading about in chapter 2 is that visit where they took the money to, uh, to the Jerusalem Jews and delivered it to them. And, and, and the apostles are saying, you know, it's great, we're going to go to the Jews, you go to the Gentiles, we're going to be ministering to the, the poor folks, you're going to have a chance to go minister among richer people, and all we're asking you, Paul, is don't forget about us. Don't leave us here. As you minister to the Gentiles and you get income from that, as, you, as people give to you for that and you can plow that into more effective ministry to the Gentiles, don't forget that you can also take some of that money and you can send it back to us, your brothers and sisters in the faith who are hurting. I mean, it's just, it's just like if you're, if you're an American and you go overseas and you do a missions trip or you make some friends there you know, in a place that maybe it's more poverty-stricken um, than you've ever experienced. And you develop real relationships there, and you're leaving, and the friend says, maybe you don't even have to say it, but you just know, don't forget me. When you go back to America, back to where life is easy, and you're wealthy, and there's, I mean, it's easy just to start to fall into that trap of, well, I need the next iPhone, and I need to get this next thing, and, and you just become materialistic again. They're saying, don't forget about me. Don't forget about me. And that's what's going on here. They're saying, Paul, I mean, we, we hammer out the gospel. We're going out in mission. And Paul, we just, please don't forget about us as we are here suffering and Paul's response is so instructive because he says, he doesn't say, all right, if I have to. I mean, if that's necessary for salvation, then I guess I will. No, that's not the, that's not the issue. He says, they asked me to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So that's not a legalistic, moralistic response. That's not, that's not saying, look, if you, if you want to get saved, believe in Jesus and give to the poor, that doesn't engender feelings of, oh, I was eager to do that. No, this response you have here is a gospel-motivated response. Paul's saying, I've been so transformed by Christ, I've been so blessed by him, that of course, the very desire of my heart is to bless others and to care for those who are in need. Um, in, in, from Paul's own words, in 2 Corinthians 8, he's raising, uh, later on in his life, he's, he's living up to this, he's raising a collection for the Jews. He's gone to all the Gentiles and he's, he's, all these churches. He's raising money later on. So he's putting this into practice. In 2 Corinthians 8, 8 and 9, here's how he explains it. He says, uh, he's telling them to give, but he says, I say this not as a command, 
but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty may become rich. See what he does there? He's encouraging them to give. He's saying, I say this not as a command, as in here's what you must do in order to be saved. Here's what you must do in order to earn God's favor. He's saying, I say this not as a command, but just think about this, folks. What has God done for you? You were poor, spiritually dead, no hope in this world, no chance to be reconciled to God. Jesus was rich. He was the second person of the Trinity, enjoying sweet fellowship in heaven with God the Father and God the Son forever. What did Jesus do? He became poor. He gave up his power. He gave up his authority. He gave up his glory. He became a man. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross that he didn't deserve, taking our sins on him. Rose from the dead victorious, and God raised him up and sits at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus became poor so that we would become rich. We put our faith in Jesus Christ, his uh, perfect life, his riches are credited to our account. Our debts get wiped away, and we have eternal life. And we can join with him in that great fellowship with him and the Father and the Spirit forever. Okay, that's the gospel. And do you see how that motivates you to care for the poor? You know, Jesus, having such riches, did not hold on to those riches, but gave them up for us that we might be made rich. How can we hold on to our earthly riches? How can we keep things for ourselves when we see those who are in need? We can't. Not because we have to earn our salvation. Oh, but we're eager to do it because that's what Christ has done for us. You see, this is just one example. Just one example that shows up here. It's like, just, just remember the poor. But of course, this is the secret to the entire Christian life. This is the secret to obedience in every area. How do we, how do we get the power to forgive? Ephesians 4. Forgive just as God in Christ forgave you. See that? It's the gospel. So you've been forgiven. How do you forgive? Because you've been forgiven. Don't just muster it up. Don't just forgive because if you don't forgive, you're not going to get saved. <laughs> forgive because God forgave you. How do you, how do you achieve sexual purity? It's 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6 doesn't just say, glorify God with your body. It says, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. So if you understand the gospel, if you let the gospel motivate you, then you begin to experience victory in the Christian life because you're no longer just trying to do it on your own. You're not trying to do it to earn salvation. I mean, those, I feel so sorry when I, when I read and hear from the legalistic, moralistic kind of folks who will say things like, if you really believe that you're saved by free grace alone, then you will never have any motivation to do good. People say that. In, in Paul's day, people said that. They said, if you believe in grace like that, you'll just keep on sinning. If you're just forgiven through nothing that you've done, why don't you just sin? You've got no motivation. To the contrary. To the contrary, you have the ultimate motivation. We have the ultimate motivation. We have the gospel motivating us. We have love. No more guilt. No more fear. No more trying to do good just so that we can get into heaven. No, we've got that. And as we reflect on, as we meditate on, as we marinate in that gospel, that becomes the power. That becomes the transformative grace in our lives 
that enables us to have victory in all the areas, whether it's uh, sex or forgiveness or um, fear or patience or lying or truth-telling, sharing the gospel, just loving your neighbor, you name it. This is how you get victory. This is how you grow as a Christian, as you believe the gospel and you live in that freedom. So don't add to the gospel. It doesn't need any help, okay? <laughs> Believing in Jesus alone for salvation is enough. And Jesus plus nothing is everything. As we meditate on this good news of salvation, of free grace, salvation through Jesus Christ alone, we, we, we need to just meditate on that until it hits us, okay? Until it gets us, until it clicks. Don't move on. Don't think I've got it. You, you don't have it. Bask in the gospel, meditate in it, marinate. And then when it hits you, then you'll want to share the gospel. Uh, you'll want to care for the poor. You'll want to forgive. You'll want to do all the things that you're supposed to do. And you'll do it with joy and with peace and with patience and with gentleness and with love of the Holy Spirit. And that is how we get to share the gospel in such a way that people say, yes, I want that. I want that. Let's pray. Father, we do want this. I mean, it's, I, I don't know um, hearts. And so um, I don't know how this is falling on each individual here today. Um, if there are any here who have been convicted of thinking, I have only ever believed in a false gospel. Lord, I pray that this would be the moment when they believe the true gospel. Lord, would you, would you guide them through that process now of saying, no, I, I repent of believing in my own performance. I repent of believing in any of my good works. I trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation except that free gift. Father, for, for those who are true Christians but yet are still living in slavery in a million different ways um, to work or to our children or to um, entertainment or to anything, Lord, would you convict us of that sin? Open, us our, open our eyes to see the things that we're trying to to smuggle into the center of our lives besides you. Help us to repent of those things and to experience freedom that we might, that we might understand. Lord, that the eyes of our heart would be opened to see the height and depth and width of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, would you, would you move us today from just knowing the gospel to really knowing it. Move us from just being able to articulate and say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ alone. Move us from just there to really feeling it, to really believing it, and to be overflowing. Oh God, make us hot for you. Thank you for the work that you do in our lives. Thank you for the work you have done and the work you're going to do. We continue to pray, Father, that you would use us to lead people to faith, that this year even, we would have the opportunity to bring people to a saving knowledge of you. We ask this in Jesus' name because we have no authority or power in our own. Amen.